I'm someone that's incredibly critical of, of YouTube, especially when it comes to photography. Um, I do a lot of editing from home. I'm a professional photographer that spends more time editing than anything else. And YouTube tends to save me from pretty much losing my sanity of just staring at a screen with nothing else going on. YouTube has kept me sane over the last 15 months, that's for sure. Uh, but I really do struggle with photography on YouTube purely because I find that there seems to fall into two ca categories. One side is sort of very, very broad stroked product placement. And then the other side is people that don't really know teaching other people that don't really know. And it's, it's like, it's, it's, the will is right. The intention is good, but maybe it's not the best thing to have out there. It's the other side of having a democratized media format. However, recently I've been extremely lucky. I found several YouTubers, um, Robbie Maynard, uh, Karen Mayoka, and probably the person who's going to be the most annoyed when he sees his uh, social blade with the number of videos of his I've been watching. Today's guest, uh, I'm going to ask you to say your name so I don't get myself in trouble. Oh, it's just Theo Crawford. Teo. Yeah, see, I was going to say Teo, but I thought if I say Teo, it's going to be Teo. And if I say Teo, it's going to be Teo. Oh, well, yeah, true. A lot of British people call me Teo. Well, the one thing that people are going <laughs> to realise listening to this very quickly is that despite the fact that I come from the country where the language originates from, I speak it worse than you do, which is going to be very frustrating considering you're a man sat in Austria speaking English considerably <laughs> better than a man sat in England. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but let's start off with the, the way that we always start this is just what was it that made you sort of find photography? What made you want to pick up a camera in the first place? Quite uh, not, not a straightforward road, actually. Um, well, now when thinking about it, I, I grew up with cameras, like my dad always had cameras around and me and my siblings had our cameras as kids already um, back in the days in like 2009. I mean, I'm, I'm still pretty young, so it's not so long ago. <laughs> but when I was small, I used to have these point and shoots, these digital ones that have like a beautiful zooming, pointy zoom lens on them. And uh, I have some memories of doing a lot of things with those, but not just for fun, not, not really thinking about it. I just thought it was fun to have pictures of people and pictures of things just to be able to document things, um, which I, I guess is the essence of photography, which I kind of liked back then already. Um, and then, I mean, then came smartphones. So of course, right. taking pictures was even further democratized. And, uh, but it was around then that I actually didn't take so many photos anymore. I actually went more into this post-production thing that I really enjoyed editing photos. I enjoyed doing like um, these surreal edits of people walking on clouds and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, I do remember it was sometime around then, maybe 2014. So when I was 14, um, that I picked up my dad's DSLR. He had a Canon DSLR just lying around. He didn't use it so much. And I had a lot of fun when we went out on little trips to somewhere to ask him if I could use it and then look through the viewfinder. And I don't know, I, I somehow had fun composing things. I don't know where that came from. I still have absolutely no idea where that came from. Just, I remember that one trip that we did that I, I, I don't know why I remember that trip specifically, but I remember it quite clearly that I had a lot of fun with this camera there. And from then, I guess it just grew. And at one point I completely dipped into YouTube. Um, I found this whole photography community in YouTube. And back then as a beginner myself, I was completely deep into the, um, I would say more the, uh, the, in the videos that were towards the beginners. Um, I was a huge Peter McKinnon fan back then when he used to do more basic tutorials. I don't exactly know what he does nowadays, but, um, I don't I think, think so he just tutorials tends, anymore. Nowadays, he just tends to shout. I think that's where it's gone. A oh, really? Bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I don't really watch his videos anymore. I don't really know what he does. But back then, he did these simple tutorials for beginners, and I found it so helpful. And uh, I watched a lot of his videos, and that whole... I felt like every YouTuber I was watching was from Toronto, so just that whole group <laughs> over there. <laughs> um, 
I watched a lot of them and from there, everything just, I think, yeah, in 2017, my dad then decided to buy me um, my mirrorless camera that I actually still use today. And uh, from then it was just <laughs> photography every day, basically. But also filmmaking. I'm, I actually come a bit more from the video side and then later found myself liking photo a bit more. Yeah, I think that definitely shows up in in the, the sort of the production quality of, of your YouTube videos. One particularly that struck a chord with me was uh, your video on themes in photography, which I think is maybe the most important watch for general photography for people that are watching photography on YouTube. And I'll get to that in a bit. Um, but you touched on something there about the you sort of became attached to the memory of the time you spent on that one particular trip and that kind of ignited photography for you it kind of it's kind of left an impression with you and one thing i do notice with uh, photographers and i think i know that this is probably going to be controversial in this day and age but i feel like <laughs> men particularly um tend to get attached to gadgets or gear or or things they're very thing focused and actually what really can spark inspiration is is being interested in in like the process or the event rather than the gear that can actually inspire you more to get better at it it can inspire you in terms of just enjoying it what is it particularly about photography now like in, in the today that that you enjoy the most um well Interesting that you come from the the side of of speaking of like being really into gear because that was a huge shift of mine. I I used to be an intense gearhead, just really looking after every camera and uh, looking at all the features. And you can't imagine how long it took to find the right camera to ask my dad to buy that the one in 2017 that he bought me. Right. I spent weeks researching for the perfect camera, and then. Uh, yeah, nowadays I, I wouldn't really care too much because they all basically do the same. Yeah. Um, but for me now, it's it's just the process. I find it very um, meditative in a way. But I, I'm not sure if that is something that I would have felt back then because I guess it's something that is meditative for me because it's so familiar to me. It's a it's an activity that comes natural to me and that can bring. Um, joy, but and then that can also bring results that I'm then really satisfied with afterwards, after, after the process. So I guess that is what I enjoy about it a lot now. And also how much meaning photography can hold. That's something that I found for myself in the last one or two years only. It's quite recent, actually, um, if you look at it that way, mm -hmm. that um, I see so much more in photography than I used to do. Like you, when I started out with photography, photography was all about um, basically just all about the the how clean the photo is and lighting and the colors maybe. Um, but now it's just a much much more about what you can actually see in the photograph. And as you maybe thought in the in the video yesterday, I have a lot of fun interpreting photos, yes. even if it's just my own. And I try to find some sort of thing that the photo could have a meaning of. I I really enjoy that nowadays. And, uh, yeah, that, that's also something that I'm really enjoying now, but I don't know that that's probably going to shift in the next couple of years. Again, I'm excited to see where it goes and, uh, how, how it's further going to shift what exactly I like about photography, but it's a whole mixture at the moment of the process itself and, uh, and also just the, the fun in the mind. Well, I feel like any kind of self-reflection over the course of, you know, the pandemic is just going to be a little bit fruitless because the minute we are on the minute we're seeing this in the rear view, I feel like we're going to, we're going to change who we are as people quite substantially. I think a lot of people have referred uh, to be, you know, quite good in isolation, quite good at um, missing out on things and, and your personality kind of hardens up a little bit because of everything that's going on. And it's kind of hard to take stock of where you are in life when you don't know if week by week you're going to get locked back in or you might get ill or, you know, this might happen, that might happen. So that side of things, I think, makes it hard to do a bit of self-analysis. But probably my favorite thing about, uh, and it's not only relaxing in the sense of you don't do what a lot of people do on YouTube, which is kind of the way that modern music has gone, which is it's the loudness war, which is like the compression 
on music has just gotten so ridiculous that there's there's no dynamic range to modern music anymore. Everything is at a hundred. <laughs> all, all sounds are at a hundred, and it's 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 exhausting. I think I think people maybe aren't realizing how taxing it is to listen to music digitally. Mod music is actually very taxing on the brain. With YouTube videos, I find when I just let the algorithm run through some photography things, quite often I get exhausted quite quickly at people being extremely loud or trying to constantly project their own success and so on. With your videos, it's calm. Your voice is ridiculous. I wish I could steal your voice. I like, I, I, I love the thought of Americans trying to interpret your accent because they have a hard enough time with just a basic English one. <laughs> But your, my favorite part of your videos is, is the analytical side of things. You really break down pictures and explain what you were thinking and what you think of the end product. It really takes you through. So every time you go out of a camera, is it an exercise for you in self-improvement? What do you mean exactly, an exercise in self-improvement? Well, you just said that you in, you're enjoying the analytical side of things, looking at a picture and trying to interpret the potential meaning mm-hmm. and so on. Is it important that every time you go out with a camera that that side of things, that your your analytics from the last video or the last time you went out of a camera carries through into the next one and that you're, you know, it's the improvement of your work kind of the basis of that, of that analytical side or is that the part that you're just enjoying regardless of, of the process? Um, they're actually... Two quite separate things for me. Um, when going out to do photography, I don't think too much about it. When actively doing photography, I go quite intuitively just by feeling. And then all the analytical stuff actually comes afterwards when analyzing my own work. So when it's like, like just being self-critical about my own work afterwards when I see the finished product and I try to reflect what this is worth for me, if, if I like it, if I don't like it. And if I do, or if I don't, why that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something I actually actively think about when out doing it or when creating it, um, except if it's something that I've pre-planned. So sometimes or at the moment, I've got a couple concepts or ideas of, of photography projects or a photo series that I would like to create one day um, or sometime soon that, of course, now the analytical side has come before the actual creation but usually it's the other way around and a lot of people interpret because of the the, the way that i speak i think i sound i sound negative when i'm maybe not necessarily being negative although (laughs) i am english so we are usually pretty down um i'm not saying this in a critical way of other people but from your own perspective in your own experience do you think it would benefit people to be more analytical of their own work as opposed to being and like, I find a lot of people are very analytical and I'm including myself in this of other people's work. I'm very good at analyzing other people's work, but I almost have a blind spot with my own work in the sense that I was there when the image was created and I'm emotionally attached to the certain moments that are involved. So it's very hard for me to break down things in a more technical way. Unlike when I'm looking at other people's work, when I have the coldness of not being involved in the process, do you think it would be more enjoyable or just generally more beneficial for photographers to be a bit more analytical? Um, well, it depends. I don't see a problem if photographers don't enjoy the analytical side and just want to um, enjoy what they do. Um, that's, that's fine. But if they have fun doing it, they should definitely go ahead and do it. I guess I just do it because I enjoy it or I always just naturally tend to do it. It's something that comes natural to me to if I want to define why I like this photograph or no way, let me put it this way, that if I see a photograph and I like it, I just get curious why I like it. So I reflect about my own feelings and my own thoughts of the photograph and analyze the photograph to find out what it is that makes this photo cool in my personal opinion. Um, But if other people don't enjoy that, I, I don't think it's really necessary for photography. It just depends what kind of photography you want to do. So yeah, I think it just really depends on the type of photography you are and the type of photography you do. Um, I just really enjoy it. That's why I I do it a lot. (laughs) And just because I'm basically deferring this podcast into you educating me because 
I watch your videos and it's it's nice to feel so stupid. Like the way you break stuff down makes me feel stupid, which is great because I, I've always said, and this is genuinely true, I've always said the, the sort of optimum position for me, because I'm such a huge, huge fan of photography, is for me to be the worst photographer in the world. Because if I'm the worst photographer in the world, then I'm just going to be endlessly inspired by everything that's around me. And that's, you know, I, to enough. me, I don't see it as a competition. And I, don't, I don't really understand the mindset of seeing it as a competition. Mm. I always find competition in arts to be kind of, I end up feeling like a horse booking a holiday. I don't really, I can't get my head around it. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But if I could ask you, and obviously feel free to just completely, you know, (laughs) knock, knock this out and we'll move on as quickly as you want to get away from it. But how important do you feel formal education is in like photography or any form of art form? Oh, that's a really interesting question, seeing as my opinion on that has changed over the course of the last two years, which have been the two years in which I've had formal education. Um, <laughs> because before having the formal education, I thought it was probably not important. You could just do it without it. But um, I would say that a lot of my analytical side, which I enjoy so much now, has come from that education. And so... I'm quite thankful that the education has opened this door for me. And therefore, I nowadays would say that it's very beneficial and therefore quite important because it just adds a certain depth to your work and to everything you do. And I would say that my education at the moment, so I'm I'm still in the midst of uni, I'm coming into my last year now. And uh, the last two years have taught me a lot of things that I think have helped me to understand how to analyze and think about my own work or or even the work of others, but mainly I just do it with my work. And, uh, I think that is something I I can imagine that is something I wouldn't have been able to do if I wouldn't have gotten the education. So let's talk about YouTube for a little bit here. Um, that's how I found you. And I was literally watching one of your YouTube videos before we started, which is a bit, sounds a bit depressing because it sounds like I've got maybe a slight issue, but (laughs) what is it that YouTube does for you now? Because I've tried a couple of times and beyond the fact that I really don't have the face for it, I find that I, I, I can't quite work out what direction I want to go in. And I focus so much on an audience side of things, which doesn't even exist. Like to, to start off thinking about what your audience would want when you don't have an audience is really stupid. I, I worry so much about what other people would want or what would be useful that I kind of never get off the ground with it because... I'm not doing anything for myself. So what is it that YouTube does for you? It's always fun to realize just that um, after taking some time off of YouTube, actually, because um, I've just I've just come back from two weeks of uh, shooting on a film set. And so prior to that, to those two weeks in that week, I was busy pre-producing the videos, except for the one that came out yesterday, which I kind of made in a rush the last bits yesterday and the day before. Um, but after taking a little break off of YouTube and then making a video again, always makes me realize why I love it so much. And it's just this full creative control. Um, before I went to university, I worked for a year in an advertising agency as a video producer, Mm -hmm. which included shooting all sorts of commercial stuff, but also a lot of editing and that was, there was basically absolutely no freedom in there. The clients had the saying and they said exactly where this had to be and how long it had to be and how the rhythm has to be, what the music has to be. I was basically just the machine to do it because I knew how the programs worked, but there was no creativity involved. And what I love about YouTube is that I can make videos that I personally think are valuable. And also I have a lot of fun making them in my own personal style. And I enjoyed the freedom that I have in making them. And I enjoy even more that people actually like the, the stuff I make, because of course, if I'd be free and uh, I'm, I just do what I want, but nobody likes it. It might be a little sad in the end, but uh, it's like a bonus that people actually like it because that just um, gives my freedom a bit more sense. You could say. Right. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, one of the easily one of the best photography based videos on on YouTube is yours on theme. Oh, I loved making that video. That was so fun. Honestly, I don't mean to be uh, 
uh, too artsy here because I'm English and I've got to curb my enthusiasm quite substantially. <laughs> but you can tell you enjoyed making it and you can tell you really, it's not like uh, a lot of, here's 10 tips for, and then just like eight tips that are just the most recycled stuff that everyone else has ever heard. And then the last two are a repeat of an earlier two, but with a slight variation. It's <laughs> like, you can tell you really put some thought into that. The examples you gave, particularly street cola has become a bit of an obsession for me. That page is so cool. It's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's what I like about it is I've always had this, this thing with, with art in general. So when I've done music now, when I'm doing photography is that it's really mm-hmm. fun and there's different ways that you can do this, but if you take whatever your process is and you stick a pin in one part of it and you can't change that one part, and you have to work the rest of the process around it, it makes you get creative. The minute that you kind of uh, restrict yourself, uh, one thing I do suggest to a lot of photographers that I've spoken to mm-hmm. that are in a bit of a funk is to do it with gear. It is like, if they're going to be so gear-centric, stop that side of things. So they're only allowed to use one particular lens and it can't be the one that they fall back on a lot. And they work from there. I did it a couple of years ago. I was really struggling with um with part of the documentary side of wedding photography Mm -hmm. and my my basic thing was every time i'm at a wedding and i hate 50 mil as a focal length i can't stand it (laughs) i I just i I either want to go wider or i want to go longer it feels like i'm just it's just where i'm stood it's it's very hard for me to get creative with it or it was Mm -hmm. and my thing was every single opportunity i'm gonna have at work or in just general day-to-day photography I'm going to have a 50 mil on the camera to force myself to Ooh. have to fight it and have to find my, my groove within that focal length. And I think yeah. that that restriction is so important to photography because photography is expensive, but it's never been cheaper in a kind of funny way. <laughs> like you can pick up fast prime lenses for digital, very cheap. Amazon seems to have an endless supply of bizarre companies that no one's ever heard of that make like (laughs) 1.2 manual focus lenses and cameras for what they are are now so cheap that if you buy a camera from five years ago it's it's going to be brilliant even by today's standards there's no real fall off anymore so that restriction really helps you actually uh, focus in on what you're doing rather than what the gear's doing in my opinion um Am I in? Am I in the right ballpark? Are we in agreement there that restriction is like probably maybe t- the most underutilized tool for for getting through like a a creative block? I don't know if it's under, uh, underutilized because I don't really know how other. I don't speak too much with my other photography friends about the this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't go out too much with them. Actually, <laughs> I mostly just go alone. <laughs> Um, but, uh, so I don't know, I don't know if I can agree that it's underutilized, um, but it's definitely valuable. Although as in mentioned in the video, I think I did start this discussion of whether restrictions are really good, but I do still stand by that. I think it is in, in the end, it is actually really helpful just to bring you further and to get you out of a sort of comfort zone that you're in. So like you got yourself out of your comfort zone and just forced yourself to shoot, shoot with that 50. How did it go? I mean, I guess it was a, did it bring, did it bring you joy in the end? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of opened one significant sort of side effect that I didn't foresee coming, which, so I'm, I'm surprising for someone that has a, a podcast, but I do it from my own home. So it's not as surprising when you see it from a bit more zoomed out perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm very introverted. I, I'm and not in a kind of shy way. I just, I'm very happy not being around people. I find mm-hmm. like big social situations to be quite tiring. And I, I find I, I can, if I'm around a hundred people for a week, then I'll be fine because you get to know people. But that initial stage of getting to know people, I've always found very difficult because I just find it a bit overwhelming. Well, having the 50 and having to really kind of move in to these social situations to photograph it, a side effect was that people would start talking to me and I would start talking to them a lot more commonly at a wedding. Whereas I've always had the, previously had the the disposition that a documentary photographer doesn't involve themselves with what they're photographing. Now, 
Oh, I okay. can, because it's a wedding, I think it's the most contrived event that humans have managed to come up with. I can document it, but I can also manipulate it very slightly now in the sense of I can go and have a conversation with a group of people. And because I then look like I'm part of the group that's at the wedding, I can then photograph from that point other people and not be uh, as uh, um, obvious, not be as, as obvious to the people that are maybe more skeptical of a camera being put in their face. And by the time yeah. I've done maybe 10 minutes of that, I've, I've worked my way through a crowd and I can then literally just walk into conversations, photograph people from five or six foot away and they're not even aware of me or they're not bothered by me. So it that has sounds the, really good. It has the really unusual side effect, which I didn't see coming. I just thought I was going to get used to a lens because you think of it in, a, I was thinking of it in a gear sense and it just actually, yeah. it broke down the distance between me and the people I was photographing so much that if I was to look at myself two or three years ago as a photographer compared to the way I am now at a wedding, <laughs> I'm much more confident in, in the social aspect. And I'm also much smarter about when to talk and when to not talk, which is like probably the most undervalued skill you can have in wedding photography because I've watched Great. people over-involve themselves and then they become too obvious to everyone and they struggle to get anything to, like sort of of the day that it's more like everyone's too aware of them. They become that the fourth wall just gets constantly broken. Whereas mm. there's other people that don't say anything. They never get involved and people almost become skeptical of them. Like they're a predator on the outside <laughs> of a group and they're a bit shy and the, the same problem happens. So I feel like I found the balance through it. And I can now basically just tell people it's from watching videos like yours. I've, I've developed this incredible analytical way of thinking, whereas actually it was a complete accident. I managed to stumble upon something useful. With regards oh, to, great. Well, with regards to gear, and I, I do try my best to not talk about gear, but you're someone that um, you shoot across mediums. Like you've mentioned doing filmmaking, but also film photography and digital. And you don't yeah. tend to make a show of it. A lot of people seem to identify themselves as being a film photographer or they identify themselves as being a filmmaker or whatnot. Is it the case that the medium isn't important to you? It's more about like your voice within that medium. The medium in the sense of photography as a medium? Uh, digital, film, if you were doing stuff oh, with okay, motion. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the, if we're speaking of the medium as photography, I am of course, very focused on photography, obviously. Yep. Um, but if we're speaking of the medium between digital and, uh, and uh, analog, then the only difference that makes for me is actually the process. And I just enjoy both. I haven't quite figured out actually why I sometimes tend to do film and sometimes do digital. There's not really a set of rules for me when I do it. It's quite intuitively. Also, I haven't been doing film photography for so long yet. Um, not even a year. In November, it's going to be a year. Right. Um, so I'm still figuring a lot of things out, actually. <laughs> and uh, But for now, it's quite intuitively that sometimes I just, feel, I just feel like trying out a new film stock because there's still so many film stocks that I haven't tried out. So it's that excitement of trying something new. Um, and also just the whole process is different. And so sometimes I feel like the film process and sometimes I feel like the digital process. Um, oftentimes when I prefer the digital process, it's, um, it might be out of convenience. But right. for example, when I was in, uh, on holiday on Sardinia, I actually had both cameras with me, the, the digital camera and the film camera. And so for the, the film camera I just used when I saw things that I thought, oh yeah, that's really cool. I really want to shoot that. Um, uh, really selectively want to choose this subject and shoot uh, this on film. Mm -hmm. And then the other camera was like, uh, oh, this might be a shot. I might, I might like it, so I'll get it for now. And it was just a whole mixture of that. So the, the digital camera was like the casual camera and the film camera was the lesser casual camera, the more selective camera. Well, you say November's going to be one year and that's, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating and we're not even going to mention your age because as someone that's about to enter his midlife crisis, it's getting quite frustrating to keep talking to people that are significantly younger than me when I feel like I'm actually quite young for a photographer. But with regards to 
digital versus film. One thing that I've struggled with, and I, I'm a digital photographer. I started on digital. I've only been photographing with film for a little over a year. So I started in, in lockdown as something to do. Oh, yeah. I'd always wanted to develop film. So I learned to develop film and that's kind of, I learned to develop before I really learned to shoot it, which definitely oh, showed cool. up in the, it showed up in the results for sure. Is it the case, and this is my feeling on it, and I'm curious to know how you feel about this. I feel like digital is never final. I feel like we always revisit old raw files. We always go for re-editing. We always, there's always like an extra thing you can do. It's kind of a never, it's a, a bit of a rabbit hole. It's, it's never ending when it comes to editing what's possible with digital. <laughs> and I find film is like, it's kind of tangible. It's burnt into something. That's it. That's your choice. Mm, it's a bit hard to say because I also edit my film photos in the way that I don't know how, because some, sometimes I get asked if my film photos are edited and I don't know how I could not film, edit my film photos because I convert the negatives um, with Negative Lab Pro. Mm -hmm. So that basically is already editing in the conversion. Yep. And then I just tweak it to look normal because sometimes the conversion does something wrong and the white balance is way too warm or much too cold. And I know that it's not a, a natural look or it's not what the film is supposed to do. So I correct it. So it's hard. So I edit both. Um, but con concerning the, the rabbit hole thing that you, you can always keep editing. Um, well, it depends on how willing you are to do that, because I would say that I'm usually a little bit too lazy to actually do it all, all over again. <laughs> I quite like to just sit on the edit I did. And uh, if I'm happy with it and I'm happy with it two weeks later, I'm probably going to be happy with it in a year. Maybe two years later, I might not like it anymore. I right. think it was sometime in lockdown as well when I just randomly had a little bit of time left. Um, I went through some old photos from a trip to Scotland two or three years ago. And, uh, I didn't like the edits at all anymore. I thought I might start re-editing a few, but I did three photos and thought, actually, it's not fun re-editing these. It's fine how they are. And so <laughs> I stopped again. Right. So I'd say in my case, it, that's actually not so true. Okay. Well, one thing with, with digital photography is, is just the abundance and mixing the fact that you can take, you know, I can take 2,500 raw files on the cards mm -hmm. I have in my camera for a wedding. I've never gone through the cards I have in camera and that size at a wedding. And it's like, it's kind of a, an, an incomprehensible number of photos, really. Like mm -hmm. you, it, it, you know that you're taking a lot of photos as a kind of try and see what happens um, when you've got that many to work with. And when you mix in social media and the fact that for some reason... And I, I'm never going to understand this. I think that it, this is going to be the thing I'm going to be rocking back and forth in the padded cell talking about this obsession people have with the word algorithm and with being <laughs> noticed. And, you know, the, the metric of, of social acceptance is just bizarre to me. I find it to be almost religious. The, the, the terminology, terminology is religious. People talk about followers. They might as well call them disciples at this point. <laughs> This is a very broad question and I, I always have to apologize when I do this, but is there just, is there just too much photography? What do you mean with too much? Photo is there too much photography? Well, if everyone's got a phone on them and so bear in mind, again, I'm a wedding photographer, so I probably have a very <laughs> distorted view of the world, but I'll, <laughs> I'll watch a bride walk down an aisle and there'll be 30 people out of the 40 or 50 people that are watching the bride walk down the aisle taking pictures on their phones. And they'll be at like one meter increments of the same photo. And all of those photos now exist. There'll be that, that's, you know, that's one event on one day. And it's one of millions of weddings happening at that moment. Um, and that's just weddings. You know, there's people that will, you know, they'll create just for the algorithm. They've got to post something. So they'll take a picture of their coffee cup or they've got to post something. So they'll take a picture of the one I'm very kind of baffled by with YouTube is car parking spaces, people, or I suppose gas stations, but that's a sinister thing. <laughs> but they'll take a picture of something that has no emotional value, that it has no contextual value, for the, for the sheer sake of posting something. And I, I know this happens because I have friends that do it and we've discussed it at length. And I just feel like 
because photography has become so disposable, we're photographing everything. It kind of, it just feels like there's too much photography to ever be consumed by people. And it means that a lot of great photography is going to get lost in the mix and a lot of bad photography that's just posted at the right algorithmically thought out times is going to be noticed more. It just feels like we have too much of it. Okay, I see what you mean now. Um, well, generally speaking, I would say that I wouldn't agree that there is too much photography um, because in the end, there's so much photography anyway. I don't know at one, at what point how little photography there would be so that someone would say that there's not too much photography because, I mean, there are too many people anyway. Right, <laughs> so we agree that. can take photos. Uh, um, I think the too many photos, that's not really a, a problem because in the end, coming back to your um, uh, wedding example, in the end, uh, they might all be taking photos, but I'm pretty sure that in the end, yours is going to be the best because you're the only one actually knowing what you're doing. If everybody I, else I is just snapping from so. the phone. I do hope so. <laughs> and so um, I do not see the issue there in in the photographs, but in the I'm just questioning the, the minds of the people, why they are exactly photographing them with the phone. Yeah. If uh, they can clearly see that you are here to do exactly that. If the, it's literally your job at the wedding. <laughs> so I don't know why exactly they would be doing that. Of course, some intention they might have is that they can then instantly send it to their cousin who's not partaking at the wedding or something. Right. Um, there are all sorts of different scenarios when that that could be useful in our very quick digital age. And uh, so, yeah, I always try to think of scenarios like that. that It's kind of like when you go to, I mean, not that we do that very often here anymore, but when you go to like a music gig, you go to a festival Mm -hmm. or a concert, there's people that will literally not see the stage, but they'll (laughs) see their phone's image of the stage the entire way through. And there's been times, I I remember seeing Lenny Kravitz And there was one guy who I realized I was watching him watch his phone, watch the stage (laughs) because I was so obsessed with how this guy had paid like 50 pounds had dragged himself there to just basically get like the Snapchat view of the gig, which is going to sound like shit. It's going to look like shit. And you paid like, uh, like you're saying, it's not so much maybe the fact that the photo exists, but just why are you spending your time doing that when it's not necessary at a wedding? I feel like that in a lot of life. Like, I I, I mean, I photograph a lot of weddings at the moment purely because of the last 15 months. So I'm watching a lot of people in this particular scenario more often than most people really should. But it's, I find the human race to be insufferably annoying at times and like i'm trying to constantly figure out the logic behind some of what they do and that's like a completely lost cause oh i absolutely agree on that i often watch or see or read things where i just kind of i I just don't even know what to think about it and so when thinking of your example I, i also have no idea what is going in that person's mind um but yeah every every time i just try to keep any negative thoughts out of me by, I don't know where I learned this. This is actually a technique that I learned by, I guess it was a YouTube video because I spend a lot of time on YouTube as well. And uh, it was this technique of just think, or whatever you're about to complain about, just think about any random scenario of that other person, that other person might be in, which then legitimizes their action. Of course, it might be a little difficult to think, a little more difficult to think of something uh, in the case of that concert. Right. I think in the video, it was uh, like if if you're stuck in traffic and there's this car overtaking and you're really angry because that car is rudely overtaking you, it might be that car is on the way to the hospital because her the mother driving is rushing to her child who is shortly before death or something. Right. And... Uh, it's just that you should make up these scenarios just to cheer yourself up. And so I've been doing that constantly. And uh, just just a little tip. <laughs> you might want to try that. It's really helpful. Well, one thing I am learning from the podcast is talking to people all around the world is that I might be the most unhinged person because everyone's got these like really balanced, uh, calm views of the world. And I'm just constantly baffled by human beings to the point of <laughs> like, if I had hair, it would be gray. 
Um, it would have gone great at about 25 years old, to be completely honest. <laughs> um, okay, we'll, we'll start to tail off now because I feel like I've taken up far too much of your time. Your videos are fantastic at breaking down your own photos, the meaning behind it when you took it and what you see from it afterwards, what your idea was and and what the execution does for you or doesn't do for you in some cases. Um, And that's unbelievably helpful. But as far as yourself goes, do you have a network of of people that you talk to about your photography, people that give you feedback, people that you trust to maybe have the right intentions when it comes to critique um, and, and in a broader sense, how important are outside opinions uh, when it comes to like the trajectory of your own photography? Mm, outside opinions in general are really helpful because they give me a perspective that I personally or I myself didn't think of. It's not that I take them by heart or take them very seriously. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Especially YouTube comments, of course, are always a, a good source, or sometimes a bad source, but mostly a good source <laughs> um, for just other perspectives. And I just really enjoy widening my own perspective with the perspectives of others. Therefore, I think outside opinions are extremely important, at least for me personally. But when it comes to my own circle, I can actually only think of two people I would actually, or more specifically, only only one person actually that I would go to for like an honest critique on what he, oh no, actually another person, uh, three then <laughs> I could think of, um, but I rarely do. I don't exactly know why, maybe because uh, I'm afraid of what they say or I don't exactly know why I don't go to them, but I more enjoy somehow, as you can see, uh, just putting it out in the world and letting YouTube comments <laughs> be my other perspective. Um, but I rarely actually in, in real life communicate um, my thoughts on photography with uh, people and or friends in my circle. I want to avoid doing to Austria what Americans have done to Iceland. Because for about, it feels like for about the last five years, Iceland has just been trodden into the ground by people going over there to get an Instagram post so that they can impress their friends. Broken airplane. Oh my God, honestly. It looks like (laughs) Mars, guys. It looks like Mars. Yes, well done. You have also seen what everyone else that was there that day saw. I think that Iceland actually at the moment is having a bit of a a bit of a think about how they can deal with this because I do know that some of their main landmarks are actually getting quite significantly damaged um, by the numbers of people that are going there, which is a real shame and a testament to the human race just being so wonderful. I don't want to do to Austria what's being done to uh, Iceland, but what I do learn from watching your videos is that Europe is just an incredibly underrated place of such diverse fascinating uh either man-made or or nature uh you know natural environments that are fantastic to photograph and fantastic to see i think mainland europe is really underrated people kind of pick off three or four cities i mean i'm talking about mainly probably from an american point of view and most of them don't have a passport so that's probably not fair but people seem to think that there's about four cities in europe and (laughs) that europe is a country (laughs) whereas in fact like Norway is an absolutely stunning place one of my favorite places is Belgium I think Belgium has got some wonderful historical architecture especially religious everyone that wants to come to England I highly recommend you don't because it's really not worth the time but if you are in the mood for something like it you like how bad our food is and how terrible the weather is I would recommend Scotland Ireland and Wales for sure and if you actually oh, Scotland have Scotland is beautiful. Scotland's unreal. Scotland's the most undervalued country, I think, in Europe. Gen- genuinely, no one talks about Scotland being as beautiful as what it actually is. Um, and if you are forced to come to England, definitely go to the north of England. The south of England is just angry people thinking that they're <laughs> they're West Coast Americans, but with the weather of Norway in the winter. Oh, I'd actually like to come to the UK again because I mean, I, I don't know how much uh, you know, but um, I've got family in the UK, so I'm, I'm there every couple of years, actually. And, I mean, uh, I'll swap with you. If you want to come and live here, I'll go and live there. That's, <laughs> that's fine by me. At least you guys get real weather. We just get this like middling grey nothing. It's like we're in purgatory the whole time. But what's Austria like as a subject? As a subject for photography, you mean? Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Austria as a subject? Oh, well, f- firstly, beautiful. <laughs> um, I'm very focused on, on nature, as you might know. I'm not much of the city photographer. I'm also, I might just be, maybe because I grew up here, I'm not so fascinated by all the religious architecture. Because here in Austria, there are lots of absolutely stunning churches and other um, old architecture, but um, I'm fairly used to it. And maybe that's why I'm just not so uh, so sensitive to it anymore. Um, but on the other hand, I am still very sensitive to the beautiful mountains and uh, all the forests um, we have here. So I guess that theory does not make sense. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm just really pulled to to the to all the nature, especially uh, lakes that are in the mountains. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is with them, but I can't get enough of those. Um, they're just magical, and so Austria as a subject, I'd say, is mm, it's beautiful, but at the same time, a little difficult, maybe because it's uh, it's a bit too. I wouldn't say boring, but. Um, just to photograph something that is beautiful can get a little boring. So it does tend to be a little difficult for me personally, because I love to just enjoy it, but not particularly photograph it. Um, that's why I love to do photography in actually quite random places. I don't really go to any hot spots here in, in Austria because I'm not really into this, let's say more classical landscape photography kind of thing. Um, I'm desperately waiting for the misty days to come now in autumn Right. which basically covers everything up anyway. <laughs> so you can't really see much of Austria then. Um, so yeah, I'd say it is beautiful, but because of that, maybe a little difficult actually. Well, one thing I do get the impression of from your work, and it, re- it reminds me of uh, Scott Whipperman, who was a previous guest, feels like a very long time ago um, on the <laughs> podcast. Um, his, his work, I, I genuinely think uh, a lot of it is about mankind kind of trampling nature <laughs> so it's it's he he kind of he goes by the name concrete spaces and a lot of his work is kind of natural points that have had like something built through it or nature's over Ooh, trying to okay. grow back over something that's just like an absolute behemoth of of concrete and and man-made annoyance and with your work there's especially on your youtube channel um i definitely see uh you have this, and I might be completely misinterpreting this, but I do get the impression that you quite like it when uh, man-made things get destroyed by nature. <laughs> I've noticed that you do like, you'll, you'll spot a, an, an old, I don't know, like an old bike and it's been like rusted down and there's weeds growing through it and it's basically being swallowed back up by the earth. And you do, t- I do feel like you do tend to get drawn towards things that are, when it's man-made, it's losing the battle with nature. That does sound indeed quite interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's something you don't see every day. I mean, depends on where you are, but uh, I don't see that stuff every day. So every time I, I would see something like that, it's quite interesting. And I do actually quite feel like I have this feeling of, yeah, nature, go, <laughs> get that bike. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, and, uh, I've, I've got this thing of every time you see um, people act irresponsibly at like... I don't know, off the top of my head, like the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And then something bad happens to them. I'm very much inclined <laughs> to just feel like the Grand Canyon won that exchange. Yeah. Oh, I get mad when I'm skiing and I see people littering the mountain. Oh, yeah, it's just... But I'm just too shy to actually say anything. But um... no, you, You've got to learn to just shout at people. You've got to develop that angry British accent and just shout at people. <laughs> that's what you've got to do. Ah, uh, no. No, that's too much like my dad. <laughs> don't want to do that <laughs> i'll let him do that and i'll be the shy son next to him just boiling inside yeah you can be the one that if you just look fierce they'll be like well you've got to watch out in england we know you've got to watch out for the quiet ones so they'll just think that you're the scary one and they'll do what they what they're told i have taken up far too much of your time you've been really kind with uh with doing this most important thing with the podcast is that i just force people to like stuff that i like um, and in this particular situation, I want to just really emphasize and um, really overdo this. But if you're someone that watches uh, photography videos on YouTube and you're not following Teo, you're, you're basically doing yourself a disservice. Um, the guy needs to be 
through the roof with subscribers at the moment it's nowhere near where it should be there's no justice in in youtube and we need to correct that Um, and it will make you rethink a lot of your own photography which is better than just people doing constant product reviews where they read a spec sheet and take crap photos that you've seen a hundred times that never leave an impression if you're gonna watch photography on youtube they need to be following you so tell them where they can go to to see your photos on instagram and your youtube and so on well thank you so much for the kind words that's really kind (laughs) thank you so much uh well it's just teo crawford on youtube and on instagram it's basically the same just with an underscore teo underscore crawford and that's all i got actually we need to get the website sorted as well so we can make this bit longer and we can keep you know annoying people with more plugs that's what we need I can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's been such an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an honor to be here.